You are now entering the MXU podcast. No credentials required. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 111 of the MXU podcast. I'm Jeff Sandstrom, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Lee Fields and Jay Desai. Boys, how you doing? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Fanfare? Oh, cool. 111. It feels like, feels like you got to celebrate. Yeah. yeah, but it's been the other thing we need to celebrate is Jay's return. The prodigal has returned. You haven't been with us for a few episodes, so we're glad to have you back. Guys, I'm sorry, and I'm glad to be back. Every time I see a new episode pop up on my thing, I get a little sad, and I'm like, oh, I wonder if they talked about me the whole time, uh, selfishly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm back. Well, we also get stuff done when you're gone. Oh, <laughs> that's, the, so we got, that's a better problem. We got pro presenter tutorial videos now on the app. Can you believe that? Yeah, we do. Rusty Anderson yeah, do. taking everybody to school. You guys know he used to work for them. Yeah. So it's did. like it's basically like having them do the videos. And I just got messaged today. Guess what's done and ready to be uploaded? Avantis. The most requested videos we've ever had. The Alan and Heath yeah. Avantis videos are ready. It's our first Alan and Heath videos ever, and it's on their newest console. So it's, it, I, I'm so, so pumped about this. It's going to be great. You did a great job with those videos, Lee. Hey, thanks. It was yeah. an easy console to learn. I didn't want to throw it out the window like I did the wing. Huh. You know what's, okay, speaking of that, I think it's funny how I did that review video on the wing, and I said a lot of really good things about it. And yeah. I just had a few negative things and said, if you already own this, it's great. This is going to do you wonders. Right. If you yeah. don't own it and you're considering it, I think you should also consider other things. That's what I said, right? Well, now yeah. people think that I hate this thing like it's the Nazi party or something. You're the wing hater, yeah. Isn't that So ridiculous? what negative things did you say about Avantis? I don't think I said any. Okay, well, there you go. So now you're going to get accused of playing... Avantis lover boy instead of <laughs> apparently I'm just kidding My I think gosh. it's awesome it is awesome and I, I no it's not awesome I hate it I just laugh at it I get DMs <laughs> from like there's Behringer memes out there people just send them to me because they think I <laughs> hate them that's awesome <laughs> that's so funny it is funny and um, what else is going on we have an NAB party but by the time this podcast comes out, it's tonight. Listen, when this when this podcast comes out, the party is tonight. So, yeah. um, if you hear anything in this podcast episode that you need to ask us a question about, don't DM us that day because we're not going to respond because <laughs> right. we're going to be having too much fun. Right at the MXU NAB party, hosted by Central Production, co-hosted by us and a bunch of our friends, Ross Worship. And we, yes, we cannot wait. For Monday night, isn't Ross Worship a uh, friends fan page on Instagram? I think it probably is. I think yeah. it should be. I wonder if Jeremy thought about that. <laughs> Let's go reserve all the Ross Worship and make it a friends fan page. <laughs> and Jeremy right now is sitting there going, "Please don't call it Ross Worship. Please don't." I, I worked so hard on not creating a House of Worship brand. Come on, guys. I worship Ross. <laughs> That's great. I'm about to go that hang out funny. with our friend Corey for two weeks. Well, I don't know when when's oh, this that's podcast right. come out. Monday, uh, Monday. Yeah, yeah. You're stage would... managing the Elevation Worship Tour. Well, I'm probably doing everything because I don't imagine Corey's getting his hands dirty. Well, what I was about to say was stage managing 
this tour is not like stage managing anything else. You're running the load in. I'm basically the production manager because old baby face hands over there is probably in his bunk when it's time to chop the floor. <laughs> so I'm in charge. And uh, you are I guess in charge. I guess he can come Jay's in running and, the show. I guess he can just come in and mix for everyone. Well, I actually leave tonight. I go out for. Uh, I think you guys know Drew Holcomb. I'm yeah. out with Drew yeah. the next couple of days. He's opening for Willie Nelson. So amazing! That's amazing. Yeah, so that's going to be my next few days, and then. Uh, Are um, you coming anywhere on the West Coast with that? Nope, it's all East Coast stuff. Some festivals and stuff. I got to get my father-in-law to a Willie Nelson show before he dies. Willie, not my father-in-law, or both. Okay, I, guess. I, was, I was very confused. Just give me some <laughs> timelines here. We'll Probably both. Ev- I mean, eventually it'd be both. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How old is Willie? He's got to be in his 80s. He's old. He's in his 80s. Yeah. He's old. Yeah. But there's some good guys on this Elevation Tour. Eddie is out there, video. Nice. Nice big row walls. And then uh, I will make sure Corey's lubed up, lotioned up at all times. That's great. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, I think it's time that we give a little more of a reveal on our plans for the fall. Are we going to do the MXU Tour 2022? There is going to be an MXU Tour 2022. I'm still hurting from the last one. Well, you've still got a few months to recover, but we've decided what cities we're going to, and I think we need, we need to let the good people know what we're planning. All right, we're going to tell you the cities. But first, I feel like you always have to do a but first before you tell people what they want to hear. We changed the format of the tour again. Kind of. So last year, three of the eight cities, we did a team day where it was audio, video, right. and lighting. This year, we've decided that that will be every event we tour with will be that day. Yes. So that's awesome. And the normal audio event, how we started, all of that's going to continue to take place, but in Knoxville at HQ, which... It's, it is uh, well on its way to opening in the fall, so more on that later. But the tour this year, live band, audio, video, and lighting come into three cities. Should we each take a city? Uh, yeah. Let's eat. We sure. didn't plan this at all. We, we'll each take a city. Tell us your favorite restaurant in that city. Uh, Jay, why don't you tell the people what's the first city? I would like to say that the first city is... Chicago. Chicago, an MXU favorite. All right. Since back in 2016, right, Jeff? And just a little hint. I can give yes. little hints, right? We're going to be in the city. In the city. Yes. Pretty pumped about that with parking because I know that's what everyone's asking. <laughs> asking with all right the now. good food. With all the good food. Chicago has, I think, one of my favorite restaurants in it. Chicago was definitely the home of one of my favorite food experiences of all time. Uh, that's true. That and is that true. that was legendary. Chef Jake. Oh, man. We did a private dining experience. Little private pop-up dinner. Unbelievable. It was awesome. Um, you said your favorite cocktail is from Violet Hour? Yeah, I love the Violet Hour. Also, like three dots and a dash there. That's a great place. That's the tiki bar. Mm-hmm. I'm meant for Hawaiian shirts. I just need Hawaiian shirts all the time. Are you going to get more MXU Hawaiian shirts? Oh, am I allowed to come on the store? 
If you're not coming, I'm not. I'm coming. not going. If you're not coming, <laughs> cool. Yeah, I'll probably just do uh, tank tops this time. I found a company that sells. <laughs> <laughs> I found a company that sells Western Aloha shirts. Oh man! So they're That's like right they're like Hawaiian shirts with pearl snaps and the like the cut pockets and the like, yeah, you know stuff on it. They're way too expensive. City number two, Jeff Sandstrom. City number two is Atlanta, GA. Your second hometown. My second hometown. My former first hometown. And we're really excited to be going back to Atlanta. It's going to be awesome. And what do we need to share about Atlanta? Well, other than I think we're in the city there too. Does that count? We are. Oh, yeah. We are going to be in the city. Yes. What's your favorite in restaurant in Atlanta? Atlanta? Man, there are a few for different reasons. Um, it's hard not to go to Agave every time I'm in Atlanta. I hear you. Is that the place you took me to? Agave is a neighborhood, southwestern, one of a kind. It's Got right it. there, Lee. It's, it's just, actually literally right there, out that window. It's right out Jay's window. It's I've never even been to Jay's, like, so... Okay, well, we're, well, we're it's changing because, that. When it's we because when you booked the MXU tour, we were doing them like, you know, three hours outside every city. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, you let, Jay, you, you let Jay find the venues, and we're actually in the town we say we're going to be in. That's true. I said we're going to Dallas. You're, you basically did the LaCroix of tours. You're like, <laughs> we're going to be in Atlanta. There's a hint of Atlanta on this tour. <laughs> Which reminds me of our third city, because this year we will not be in Fort Worth. We will be in Lee. Dallas, Texas. We're Come on. We're coming to you. Not even Fort Worth last year. It was Weatherford. Yeah, we were. And even I think it pissed some people off. Outside of Fort Worth. We're like, we're going to Dallas. And some people looked on their GPS and they were like, oh, great. I'm only 20 minutes east of Dallas. And then they drove another hour and 15 minutes to get to us. Sorry about that. But we're coming to you, Dallas. Some friends came to visit and uh -huh. they wanted to go all to these restaurants in Dallas. And then they they like checked how long it would be to Uber. <laughs> not happening. <laughs> hour and a half. Yeah, we're not doing it. Um, so anyway, we're super excited. We're going to Hold have, on. Do I not get to say my oh, favorite restaurant in Dallas? Sorry, okay. you do. I mean, I think it closed. Does it still count? I think it didn't survive COVID. It's got to be a barbecue it, place, right? No, I don't know. I don't think Dallas had great barbecue. That was part of the problem. But the good barbecue is not in Dallas, in my opinion. Everybody is so mad at me right now. They're like, have Gosh. you had Heart 8? I've been to Heart 8, and it sucks. Okay. What about Pecan Lodge? Isn't that out there somewhere? Never been. Something. Never been. Wow. Uh, there's a restaurant in downtown Dallas called Savor, S-A-V-O-R. I loved it. Great spot, but I great. think it's gone. Well, that's too bad. There's always Whataburger. I do think Whataburger is better than In-N-Out. Uh, we're getting a Whataburger here in Atlanta. I heard that. Really? Yeah. Um, do you guys think we'll ever leave the continental 48 states? Like, Can we do MXU Hawaii or MXU Fiji or MXU we, Maldives? It is difficult right now to plan an MXU event outside of the U.S., but but let me tell you, we're trying. We are actively we are trying. I was really on the hard. phone at 11 o'clock last night, my time about this so we are desperately trying to make MXU this happen. Kenya 
that Jeff nope, will be on? No, I can't actually. Be like, Hello, my friends. Welcome to MXU Kenya. It is so nice to see you here today. <laughs> if I did that, we'd get canceled. Why can you do that? My mom's from Kenya. That's why I can do that. My aunt That's lives there and my skin is brown. Right. And he could give us a little bit of the mother tongue if he wanted <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah, don't God, don't make me roll the R's and stuff and start clicking. You could get out of here. <laughs> so we're trying. We're trying to go international. We're trying to get to Australia and we're trying to get to South Africa. That's where we're trying well, to get to. God, no London, the greatest city in the world. I do love London. That's one of my favorite cities in the world. Y'all, if I could just lead trips to London, if I could just lead groups of people to London and do like curated trips for people all over Europe, actually, I would love to do it in Italy and I would love to do it in France. I would be the happiest man. We have a bunch of our manufacturer partners in England. And I think that's good enough reason that we should just go there. And Jay, you should take us around. I... Fully support that idea. We're recording this yeah. on April 21st, and it's today is the Queen's 96th birthday. How about we try to get the Queen on here and talk about all the microphones she's used <laughs> over the years? Holy cow. That is a capital idea, my friend. I, if you pull that off, Listen, I, she has not returned one of my letters since I was 12 years old. <laughs> Please tell me you've actually written letters. A hundred percent. How many? Probably a dozen in my life. That's amazing. I love it. And you don't yeah. get a like an automatic reply, huh? No, because you know now I'm turning into a conspiracy theorist where she, that person you see in London, is like some wax statue, and she's actually under the Denver airport. <laughs> <laughs> I love a good conspiracy. Oh, you I need to it. read. Have you no. read the Denver airport conspiracies? That's the creepiest airport in the on the planet. A hundred percent. That's like saying that airport's in Denver. That airport is not in Denver. No, it's that's an like hour that's like a Lee Fields MXU day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Okay, so now everybody's wondering how can they get tickets to these? Well, they're not on sale yet. So, but, but they will be soon. But they will be soon. We're hoping in the next two weeks or so. So we're going to do another uh, big announcement, um, teasing all that. We'll have a bit of a pre-sale and even win. It's happening. We're not even going to tell you that yet, except that it's in the fall. So, But can I say this real quick, uh, preface this? I'm sure there is a bunch of our audio friends who are used to coming to the MXU thing and are a little bummed that it's not just audio. Hear me out. Yep. The best thing about last year's tour when we did do the team days was watching people come together and understand, have empathy for other departments and the unity, which is what we're all about. So while we would love to just do some of the audio stuff, which has been our historically been our foundation and a lot of what we're about, we're also we're really about stronger, better teams. So if you are one of those disgruntled audio people, check yourself. Happy to talk about it. We will figure out a time for for to do the audio thing. But I would encourage you to look around your teams and go, okay, you need to be the guys inviting the lighting and video. And even your worship pastors and your worship team and your executive pastors and that. That's all. Off my soapbox. Let me just add that if you are looking for a great audio experience, you're still going to get it. Yep. Because the band that's going to be on stage is something that we have to hold pretty close to our chest to right now. But right. let me just tell you, you are going to be blown away. Blown away. So if you are an audio person thinking, well, they're not going to talk about mixing. First of all, yes, we are. Duh. We're always going to talk about mixing. 
but the band and the musical experience that you're going to have is going to be second to none. So I hope it's POD. Start getting ready to buy your tickets. I mean, as soon as it goes for sale, just go click, click, click. Yeah, POD. It's going to be awesome. It's, I tell you this, the band that we have, um, your church sings their church's songs maybe every week. It's that big of a deal. It blew our minds that um, they wanted to partner with us, and I cannot wait to make that public. But that's all we're going to yeah. say right now. Yeah, this is awesome. Uh, we've got. I'm going to introduce this guy here since I didn't know him, and you guys did. Um, we have Dustin from Ableton, and he answers a ton of questions. We go into some rabbit holes here. We get super, super deep, and we get super, super shallow for people not even using Ableton yet and just wanting to learn how they should even start using maybe even just a click track or how to break their their tracks from two channels out to maybe four or six. That's all in there. And if you didn't know this, did you guys know that churches qualify for the educational discount for some Ableton products? I did not know that until today, but it's super exciting. So churches apparently on some of their products can get 40% off just from being a church. So I feel like I need to incorporate as a church. I think it's not called incorporating. That's the problem. Oh, uh, yeah. It's uh, 501c3. Yeah, but isn't it like business anyway? <laughs> no, you, you've kind of got that a little backwards, yeah. Jay. We'll, uh, we'll talk offline about that. But for now, let's get to the interview. <laughs> well, we're thrilled today to be joined by Dustin Ragland, who I know through his days with the Charlie Hall Band way back in the day. Um, and Jay, I think that's how you know Dustin as well yeah, originally. Man. The old Charlie. Um, but now Dustin, yeah, but now Dustin is working with Ableton. And so we have Dustin here today as an Ableton expert and kind of answering some questions and talking us through all we need to know about just Ableton best practices, workflows, what's new, all that. So Dustin, thanks for being here. We're so glad to have you. Oh man, I'm super grateful. And I, uh, you know, I've seen a bit of MXU's work from afar. So it's a, it's a mutual admiration society going on here. So, and good awesome. to just be in the same place again, virtually ish. Yeah. What's funny for those of you who don't know, or don't remember the Charlie Hall days or weren't around for any of those shows. One of my favorite things was, um, Dustin, I have a picture of Dustin standing with Brian and Charlie in the middle. And it's like two guys who are about six, seven and Charlie, who's barely five, seven. I mean, maybe on a good day, he was, he's five, seven. And it's just, it's awesome. Like we were in, I'm trying to remember the last passion world tour date we did. Was that like Malaysia somewhere it like Kuala Lumpur been. or something? Kuala Lumpur, yeah. 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 It was th those, I mean, I have a, I have a poster on my wall from 2008 of that show. <laughs> and I think that was the last official like Charlie Hall thing that I had the privilege of mixing. But I always loved that music and the creativity and just what you guys were doing even back then, 15 to 20 years ago. I think in a way, it probably set the stage for part of what you're doing now. So talk us through a little bit of that journey and how you got from there as a drummer to hear what you're doing now. and kind of just some of your some of your story yeah. no absolutely i mean i again it's uh we made a very peculiar basketball team from even the earliest days um <laughs> i mean and i guess prior to charlie a little bit of the musical background i had 
just before that, I, I got to know Charlie actually when I was probably 15. I was playing in these kind of punk rock bands around Edmond, Oklahoma, where there was a very strange scene at the time that kind of fostered a lot of this. And um, there was this worship leader that would sometimes come to these rock shows and these little clubs that us, you know, again, 15-year-olds are playing at. And I just remember thinking, oh, that was really cool. I, I went to a different church at the time and didn't wasn't connected with Charlie directly, but I just remember him being around a little bit. And I played with some guys that were, uh, you know, in Young Life, in and out. And Charlie was doing some stuff with Young Life back then too. And so it was just kind of there were these little threads and connections. And through that, occasionally, I remember buying um, Charlie's old CD Thought out of the back of his car, you know, at uh, Oklahoma Baptist University in the parking lot. It was like these really fun, like memories of of the way we shared music back in the day with these physical discs. And um, <laughs> and through that, uh, I eventually started working or I started playing and uh, attending the church that Charlie was at. And we would play together occasionally on Sundays. And then I started to fill in a little bit. And then when Will Hunt... Um, left you know, his previous drummer kind of came in to fill in and then you know through that we just i kept filling in for the next 11 years or so something like that and it's just a really unique journey because again i kind of was always straddling playing in church and then playing in some rock bands and of different styles i played in ska bands and punk bands and those kind of things this is what i what i grew up playing and so um it was a very interesting world to also inherit a role with charlie where programming and loops and tracks were very much a part of the role of, of what Will brought to the table. And so I was inheriting that and kind of really having to learn very quickly how to do this. And uh, I began by using, uh, gosh, an SP-303 sampler and would have some effects and samples and things that I would play in real time. I used an MPC-2000 that I actually bought from Will that is right behind me right there. That's It still Heck works yeah. and still around. Um and then in 2003, I think it was late summer, we were at a worship together conference in San Diego. And I still remember meeting someone there who uh, was a representative for M-Audio. And they handed over live, Ableton Live 2.6, I think, and Reason 2.0 and on disk, as you as one did. And I just got a laptop, that my first Mac laptop. That it was came with AOL, kind of, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was also an AOL disc that's always in everything that you had. And that Mac laptop, I was like, oh, this is reliable-ish. I can use it on stage most of the time, right? And um, began to learn really those two DAWs, even before I had an idea of what like a digital audio workstation was. At the time, Live didn't do MIDI. It only did audio. And Reason didn't do any audio. It only did MIDI. And so I didn't know anything about control voltage or synthesizers or any of this kind of thing too much, even though I grew up in the 80s. So I knew about it through osmosis. That's about it. And so it really was a great learning process for me. I still remember connecting a CV sequencer to an EQ and turning up the resonance and enjoying the little whoop, 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 whoop kind of resonant effects that would happen and feeling like I discovered the most you know, innovative musical process ever when this was something that Daphne Ron probably did in the 60s or something. But I was just, I felt like I was doing something great in the computer. And so, so through, cool. and so through that, that's really how I adapted those things into the workflow, particularly being able to, as a drummer, have some freedom when I was playing, let's say I'm, I'm playing a phrase and I want to hit before the next downbeat. And just the fact that in live, I could hit a scene and then would go to the next part of the track um, on the next downbeat, that freed up fills and things like that, which is not, a, you don't always want to fill up, free up fills for your drummers, but hopefully I was okay with those uh, moments of, that's I can cool. do more things. But that's kind of how the the on-ramp started into that world a little bit. 
that's a serious on-ramp. And now, let's fast forward a little bit. Yeah. You're at Ableton now. And what do you do for them now? No, great question. So in 2014, I became Ableton Certified Trainer, which is joining a part of a network of about, you know, um, a little over 300 trainers worldwide um, in really almost, you know, every region of the world that are folks that have been teaching live to some degree and in a way that um, teaching live and push to some degree that it was in a, in a way that really represented what Ableton want to communicate in terms of creativity and generosity and fostering community. And so I went through the process to go through certification and that kind of connected me to the company um, in a direct way, just to do freelance things here and there uh, for the next few years. And Fast forward through getting to know folks there better and um, was asked to come on to be the brand manager for the Southeast U.S., which is what I do now. And it's really a role that encompasses primarily supporting educational communities and creative communities in the Southeast. So I'm based in Atlanta, of course, but um, it kind of spreads around to, to everywhere from Nashville to Virginia to Florida, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, and the Carolinas, um, all, all kind of part of this big picture. And so you know, day to day, it really looks very different. It's it, it's a combination of really, it feels like the jobs that I've had in the past where I was a professional musician full-time and then was teaching full-time for 10 years in a university and all of that stuff, you know, not only for like, you have the product expert side of trying to really have a good knowledge and that doesn't mean I know everything by any stretch about the product, but just having a knowledge of being able to communicate those things well. But then also having some understanding of academic context and needs and ways to connect people and then um, pulling all those threads together and inside of a, a way of reaching into the various communities of education that exist now because it's not just an elementary school or a college. It's also YouTube video creators. It's also um, folks that are doing maybe like a small educational cohort at a church or folks that have a nonprofit that work in a certain part of the city, um, it, it, all of the above. And so it's really trying to pull those threads together and ask them what they need and then find some material ways to support them and build their community as well. So uh, tell me what That's you're, cool. uh, so you moved to Atlanta at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Or during? during? <laughs> it was during, it was the summer of 2021 which is super normal time for anybody to move. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of people were moving east, but exactly. they, they were usually starting in California, moving east, not the Midwest. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I was in Oklahoma City uh, up until that point, um, right before then. So that's where I was based for, for forever. And um, I think that's yeah, where I ran it. into you last. And then there was one time I, I was so. in Oklahoma City, and you had texted Nolan and I a place to go eat. I don't know if yeah, you remember this. Yeah. It was this great oh, totally. restaurant bar, and they had this blackboard, and you could leave a drink for somebody. <laughs> yeah. And there was a we were we were on the Crowder tour, and we all left Dustin a drink, like every single one yeah. of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Could you yep. leave Shout a specific to, uh, drink? Was it the specific? I think it, they were some specific ones. Yeah, yeah. Let's shout great. out to the Mule, the, the Mule, Mule in the Plaza District. Yeah. yeah okay, it was great. <laughs> I was in downtown Oklahoma City a year ago, year and a half ago, eating at a like a burger place with these big windows, and I was just staring out the window, and Marcus Walker standing beside me, and I'm just eating, mind my own business, and then I look up, and I go, that's Charlie Hall, <laughs> and he's walking down the street, and the guys were like, oh, yeah, he works right there. That's, a, that's his church, and I was like, oh, that was weird. So yeah. maybe you were maybe you were trailing behind him. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. That was probably that was probably uh, the garage right across yes. the front line. Yeah, the church. Yeah, 
Yes, it was. Exactly, yep. That's hilarious. Um, Dustin, uh, you've got a bunch of gear by you, so uh, clearly your wife has shoved you into the <laughs> basement somewhere. <laughs> Tell us what's going on behind you, besides the NPC from the 2000s. Yeah, I know. There is the NBC still boots off of a little floppy disk. Um, I mean, I have my drums again. They're uh, CNC custom drums that I've had for for years, and just you know, wonderful people and drum makers. And still do remote tracking here and there um, from the spot, and play uh, play locally at a church here, and then play live a little bit out. Um, I still play with my band, Bo Jennings and the Tigers, back in Oklahoma City whenever we can. And then gear wise, like uh, behind my head, I'm actually setting up a little rack for some live shows that I'm doing in my music coming up. And there's various, there's a little modular synth and a little Moog and uh, mono and some different electronic instruments primarily, as well as push right behind me. There's also a push right here, um, not to be over Ableton pushed in the room, which is more of the one I keep for writing and doing composing when I'm sitting at the screen like I'm doing. Um and then so there's, for people who don't know, yeah. why don't you describe what Ableton Push is? Totally. Because it's a it's a really powerful little controller, but I don't know that most people have used it or know exactly yeah. what it's all about. No, exactly. So the biggest idea of Push is that it takes the same kind of instrument feel that Live has on the screen or that you would encounter in the, the software instrument and puts it into a hardware format. You can write your drum and melodic parts in various formats. So with step sequencing, you can play it in in real time. Uh, you can play chords, melodies, all of that. Mix, add effects, add instruments, add tracks as you go, and then switch over. And as most people might at least be familiar with live session view, which is the view of the grid of individual clips or ideas, um, you can also view that on the pushes grid and be able to play back whole sections of your song, rearrange, remix on the fly, that kind of thing. And of course, it's it becomes really powerful not only as a studio, but as a stage tool and back and forth and, and thinking about translating, something I'm literally in the middle of with some of this music of mine. So it's very fresh in my mind. But That's cool. Yeah. But for people who can't see it, since we're not on video, um, it's it's basically a controller, but unlike a typical MIDI controller that's like a piano keyboard, this is just buttons. And so those buttons can have assigned to them individual notes, full clips, loops. Like, talk to us about what those buttons, yeah. how you have it programmed, what it what it's designed to to be like. And because I I've I've seen a DJ who has used a push yeah. device to basically do his whole show, and it's fascinating because it's literally every button you know some of the buttons are individual samples that he's just kind of making live loops and then some are just click and hold and it's playing you know a two track of something so yeah it's uh it's really flexible from what i could tell no it really is like a uh, i mean again the physical layout is you have a 64 pad center to it and that kind of ties together both the lineage of something like an mpc where you have finger drumming and um really kind of expressive electronic instrument playing combined with the idea of um which folks might be familiar with from like an ovation launch pad or uh the akai uh, uh various akai versions of this the uh, uh, apc and those kind of instruments where as a controller you can think about both the individual elements of your song so you could take those 64 pads and turn those into melodic instrument or again a drum instrument or you can take those 64 pads and turn those into the individual pieces of your song and play it back in different orders. At the top are touch-sensitive 
um, encoders that can be assigned to various things, for example, mixing volumes, or if you're doing sound design with a synthesizer, you can customize a sound design. And the nice thing about all of this is that I just am not looking at a screen ever, aside from what's on push, where there's a screen at the top that shows various bits of information. But it's great because it does really combine. It, it uses MIDI to do most of this control, so it is a MIDI controller. It also has a very specific script that connects it to live that puts everything that you see, pretty much everything you see in live, onto what Push's physical layout is and allows you to not have your head in the screen at all. And so for a lot of performers and in studio work, you might find yourself not looking at the screen for long periods of time, which can be really, really helpful when you're thinking creatively or in your in a performance and you're you want folks to kind of see the expressiveness of what you're doing. So that's fascinating. That is wild. Um, and what's that little red device over on the other side of your head? Oh yeah, so there is a rack of some various things. So there's a uh, electrics, um, uh, you know, filter factory, and then I always forget what it's called, the warp factory, which is a vocoder. Um, you know, the uh, Echo Pro, then to go to Line 6 Green Box in the rack, and uh, a couple stereo, there's a stereo compressor, there's one that I'm trying to get fixed, and some, uh, the nice little, my the Lesis Micro Limiter, which is like a great secret weapon, tiny compressor, that's just a very good drum smasher kind of thing. And then down here, I've got like a patch bay uh, of Manly Vox Box and uh, Chandler Germanium, Orban EQ, uh, and then some various just kind of routing gear and other uh interfaces it's funny that the manly the and the so. chandler are at the bottom of the list <laughs> they're at the bottom so yeah, exactly, no i can yeah. see it i'm like this is a humble guy here hiding yeah, all no, the expensive exactly. stuff <laughs> yep <laughs> that's funny okay so now we're talking about ableton like you know everyone's using it now basically you guys have a lot of market share i don't know if you knew that <laughs> you do. that's uh, why we're here we're here to tell you you're winning <laughs> yeah thank you guys yeah um I mixed for a rock band in the early 2000s. We probably came through Edmond, Oklahoma, actually. Disciple. Did you ever go to a Disciple show? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Totally. Okay. So I met Dustin before (laughs) you guys there. There you go. Exactly. Um, One of your oldest friends. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But we used an iPod, an old, before iPod photo, and it was mono mono tracks on the left and click on the right or, or whatever it was. And I do remember one time the patch guy at Six Flags in Dallas got that backwards and we didn't check it between sound check and the show. And you know, only the last song had it because that was the new single and all the old yeah. stuff. They didn't even play to a <laughs> click. It was just one song we needed that iPod for and hit play and click is coming through the house. Just cowbells is like as loud as it can. And I almost that's got amazing. But <laughs> then we switched to uh, something a little more, I guess they thought it was more professional. We switched to an Akai DPS 12. So it was basically a, a hard disc recorder um with a bunch of analog outs it's like w- there weren't many devices then that had multiple analog outs you had to get those the roland <laughs> yeah. roland had one akai had one and that was really it but then tell me if i'm wrong but where i saw the big switch was when radial started making that sw8 and it's that auto switching direct box linked to an interface and then churches and bands could have redundant systems because that was always the fear right because nobody wanted to put their whole show and then time code and maybe even video on a laptop, like what's going to happen if it crashes. And then when radial came out with that uh, redundant hardware and it was like, boom, then it was everywhere overnight. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a good question on the hardware side. Cause I mean, the, the mention of even the, uh, the tenuousness of some of this, there were all kinds of moments like that through the years that I think 
the adaption of the computer is a reliable thing to have on stage. I mean, particularly the rock bands. I mean, in, in yeah. our context, it's a little bit more stable, but it was still loud and in and out and load in and load out. And there's all kinds of variables every single night that you're doing that. Um, I, it still was though the case that I, you know, for me, I never had a redundant system other than I could just maybe if things really went um, downhill, I could plug into the eighth inch jack and then yeah. pan, hard pan and basically do that as a backup. But otherwise it was like, here's my stereo feed out in ideal situations. I could stem out a little bit with a multiple output device with, yeah. you know, loops, drums, et cetera. And then always have a click track that was running. We travel with an Avion system usually. And so that would just run internally to the Avion system, but the rest of it went yeah out to the house. So That's cool. So the way, um, I mixed for Lincoln Brewster for about 10 years and our drummer who is now one of our head programmers at MXU and runs our product team. Uh, he came up with a way to sync two laptops, both running live. And yeah. it was chasing MIDI beat clock over cat five. He tricked yeah. the laptops into seeing a MIDI device coming in as cat five and then had the radial SW eight. So oh, when you hit play on one machine, it sent a MIDI note to the other. So it would start playing too. So both machines were playing. And then all the outputs were going to the radial and then only eight coming out of the radial instead of 16. And then if one rig went down, he would just flip it over. Video out of one was coming. Um, I believe it wasn't HDMI. I guess it was VGA or, oh, or wow, DVI yeah. at the time. So they were also both doing video. It was crazy. That's gosh, that's amazing. And that was in 2010, yeah. 2011. Oh, wow. oh my gosh. Yeah. You guys were ahead of your time. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. you just figured out a way to do it because... Uh, we could not let the video go down like it was running the yeah. whole show with an LED wall. It was before media servers were even affordable for <laughs> churches or even a small Christian act to even have. So we had to figure out a way to do it, and that's what we did. I, I happened to ask online last night when I was thinking ahead for once uh, some questions that our audience might have. Um, someone, first one, uh, Caleb RZ just said, Fruity Loops for the win. No question. That was more of a statement. Uh, but Carl Wiggers asks, uh, session or arrangement view, which I think is the age old debate. I'm sure. Yeah. Pros and cons. Yeah. I know pros and cons. And also maybe just to start like a bit of a quicker explanation again, since you all are like seeing a screen of this, you know, arrangement view to start there is typically the way that you would probably think about a DAW. The, the analogy is a tape machine where you start recording at a point in time, to the left and then you end recording at another point of time to the right. Um, and you lay things out in a visible format and that's the arrangement of the different objects or elements of your track or your song. And session view is not the opposite of that. It's just a different approach to collecting and gathering ideas, but we're in arrangement view. You have a sense of time. Time begins at zero, zero, zero and time ends at, you know, five, 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 whatever it is. In session view, you have just timing. There can be a tempo at 100 beats per minute at 4-4 meter, and that just goes in the background. And then the elements that come around that timing can take any sort of form and shape. They start when you start them, and they end when you end them. And you can play back ideas in a nonlinear way if you want. The other advantage of session view, I guess, in this, this context to understand it, is that it also allows you to arrange things in a way that you can interact with them, particularly when it comes to live performance, although I want a pigeonhole for that, but that's definitely the, the strength or one of the strengths of it, particularly when it comes to live performance, you can have fairly complex and multi-layered sets that 
never really tie you to a specific form. So practically what that meant in my situation even was that we rarely played the song the same way twice. Uh, there would, I, I would say that it's not like it was free jazz every single night with, with us and the Charlie Hall band, but it, there, we did have windows in each of our songs. And this may be very similar for a lot of uh, worship leaders and a lot of uh, bands that are in, whether it's traveling or local church context, where you have a window in a song where you might stay in a section for 16 bars, you might stay there for five minutes and you kind of are following the liturgy or you're following what's happening in the moment. And the nice thing about using session view and using, in my case, scenes to control this in session view, which controls a row of multiple loops or clips or musical elements that allows me just to stay here. I'm like, okay, cool. I can follow where Charlie or wherever the leader is going and now, okay, we're about to go to the next section. Maybe we have some visual cues for that, or maybe I just know intuitively, cool, I can press the next scene, and now we go on to, let's say, the bridge or the chorus. And that really does pay off in session view. The nice thing about it is you're not tied to one or the other. So when I'm recording bands or my own music, which tends to be a combo of electronic and acoustic instruments, so I'm going to record multi-mic drums, and I'm going to record guitars and vocals, I might be mostly, if not entirely, in arrangement view. And a lot of folks might do that. But now, exactly, again, literally in the situation I'm in right now, I'm trying to translate those songs into a live performance. I can take elements of that in the arrangement and do what's called consolidate to a new scene and bring them into session view. Uh, When I'm starting ideas, I might start in session view and go, I'm going to make a drum loop. I'm going to make a bass line now. I'm going to make a chord progression. And the cool thing about that in session view is that it doesn't require me to write the entire song from the get-go, and I kind of get an idea down. Even if I've got 30 minutes to do it, then I've got to go and pick up my daughter from school. You know, like That's that's a common situation for many of us where we got multiple things going on, but to be efficient with that time, I don't feel like I have to write the entire arrangement right then. I can just get some elements going. Then I can come back to that, and then eventually work my way to record that into the arrangement. It's very cool. So I know that that's a layer of philosophy, but hopefully also a bit of understanding about why those two things exist. It's really to give you options, but you know they're, they're really not either or, um, although you might find one far more beneficial for some project than another. So, um, Someone wrote, why Ableton over other DAWs? Well, I mean, one in this sense, and this is very true for really all of us, is that we obviously don't see it as an exclusive thing either, where you just have to use one DAW and not all the others or anything like that. It's very much part of an ecosystem, like knowing that folks might start off a tracking session in Pro Tools and then need to get that over to live for a live performance. Or folks might write initially in Ableton Live and then write on push, and then they want to bring that into Pro Tools for mixing or something like that. So there's definitely a being a part of the ecosystem. And that's also one of the reasons why we sometimes resist adding a lot of things to live because part of the ethos behind it is to really have it be something that feels agile and feels like an instrument. And most instruments don't allow you to do everything on them. And that's kind of what makes them instruments is that you can be immediately sit down and start doing something. So if I'm kind of answering the question, like why do I go to live initially? I mean, there is also a very honest answer that I've used it the longest, and so it just feels the most comfortable to me. The second layer of that is that I can get an idea done very quickly in live, and I think I can start an idea and start making music very quickly. And that's something I've noticed that's very different in other DAWs still, and to most degrees. It, it might take me a second to get something going. 
um, in any other thing. And I use Pro Tools. I use Logic quite a bit myself too. So it's something to where those are comfortable and familiar and I work on those every week. But um, if I'm sitting down to do something quick or I have a limited amount of time to be creative, definitely do that in live. And then third, I, I'm, I'm biased, so I'll obviously meet it, but I really love the intent that goes into the built-in sound tools, whether that's the software instruments, the audio effects, and then particularly Max for Live elements where there are very creative audio effects and MIDI effects and software instruments that are built by folks that are even outside of Ableton that um, really create ways of interacting with music, generating music, thinking of creative ideas that I would never even think of. And they really can be inspiring when I'm stuck for an idea in that sense. That's cool. That's awesome. Uh, someone wrote, um, does Ableton have a built-in time code generator like Reaper? So not a built-in time code generator like Reaper, although you can send time code from live. It's one of the uh, ways of sending sync out along with a various kind of MIDI clock and things like that. So, there are some things, and that's one of the pieces where um, very often I have conversations about this when syncing with video projects or post-production projects of, you know, there are advantages and limitations to the way that live approaches this. Uh, one, video editing and video com composition is really intuitive. It acts just like audio editing and is very straightforward. So live tends to be a really good environment for live performance of playback of video and or if you're writing or editing along to something that's already kind of locked. But when it comes to having a lot of different sync capabilities and being able to interact with a lot of externals, um, you know, very specific hardware externals, that's where their limitations are there sort of on purpose to not, to not um, bring too much under the hood so that all that live performance stuff that can happen on the fly without stopping playback, without stopping audio, those kind of things can stay really intact. Yeah, because it wasn't, it wasn't really designed to do that, right? For sure, yeah. And it doesn't mean necessarily that it shouldn't, um, but it is one of the reasons why, again, some of these decisions can be limited or some yeah. of those features can be limited. Whenever we needed timecode to come from Ableton, we would just drop in timecode tracks into it. Yeah. So we just had yeah. a folder full of basically every time up to, I don't know, 99, 99, whatever, just a lot of them. And we would just in pre-production, whether it's a tour or a big event, like, okay, what's our time code range going to be? And then here's drop 20 of them in and we would just decide which ones to use. Is that kind of how everybody else does it? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Syncing Ableton to LTC. So something else is the LTC master. How do you do that? Um, one of the, one of the ways you could try to do that. And I actually haven't tried this, um, but if you use in Live 11, you have the tempo follower uh, feature, which features an audio input. So you do need it to be some kind of audio pulse. But what tempo follower does is actually listen to the audio tempo pulse and will then adjust the metronome in increments based on that. So if there's any kind of change or movement or drift or even tempo change, it will follow that. I've done this with CV, uh, with um, uh, modular clock, and I haven't done this with uh, LTC specifically. I wonder if the person who asked that they're trying to get Ableton to receive a play command, right? And there's time code doing this everywhere else. So wouldn't an easy way to do that be okay. You would just send a MIDI note from another device at yeah. the same time into Ableton. 
which we have this question. We have it both ways. We have the MIDI thing both ways. So I'll, I'm going to ask a few questions, and we can answer probably all of them collectively. Um, can you MIDI map from an M32 console? So can you send MIDI to trigger Ableton? That's what that sounds like. Uh, someone asked, uh, can you recall plug-in presets like on Wave Super Rack with Ableton? Uh, and then the other version of that is out of Ableton, it sounds like. There's a lot of people asking, can you send MIDI out for ProPresenter lighting consoles, tracks and click? Can you send it out for lights, ProPresenter, uh, ATEM switchers, uh, ProPresenter again, Q lyrics, media files from Ableton. There's a lot of that. Grand MA lighting from Ableton. So looks like both ways, from audio consoles to Ableton and then out of Ableton to ev everything else. So maybe breaking those down into like three chunks. The first one in terms of being able to send MIDI from a console to be able to control elements in live. Yes. I mean, with anything that shows up as a MIDI interface will show up as a MIDI input interface inside of live. And you have the option of, you'll see when you go to live's MIDI preferences, you'll see the option for track, sync, and remote. Track just means to track note input values. Typically, those are going to be your MIDI note tracking. Sync will be looking for something like clock to actually do some sort of external sync where MIDI will follow some sort of external clock. And then remote will look for CCs. And in most cases, if let's say you're doing a fader, depending on the console, it might send a note when you touch the fader. That's actually similar to what pushes uh, encoders do. It'll send a note when you touch it, and then it'll send CCs whenever you turn it. And so it will receive both of those things. But if you're wanting, let's say, a fader to control something in live as well, all you would need to do is go into the top right and click on MIDI. And anything that turns blue in live can be assigned to a MIDI controller. And as long as that controller shows up as a MIDI interface, then you should be good to go for that. Okay, can we pa That's, let's pause right yeah. there. I think you yeah. just gave me a gangster idea. <laughs> so the, the biggest challenge for a front house guy and using tracks is levels. Like the levels are all over the place and we could do a whole episode on why that is and summing and what happens when you break tracks down into subgroups in Ableton and they're not getting the right summing that they had in the DAW and, you know, combining things is another 60B and like, that's a whole thing, right? Okay. Yeah. But a way to solve this, could I have, let's say I've got eight, eight stems in Ableton. And I've got those coming in as inputs, but can I also have another eight faders buried on my console somewhere that are sending CC to the output of the faders in Ableton to pre-blend those tracks the way I want so that my input faders could stay at Unity? So instead of me telling the drummer, hey, can you turn down the perk stem yeah. 6 dB on that song, I could go to my MIDI faders and do it myself. I believe so. Again, I, I want to say it with some asterisks because I haven't tried that or seen that situation myself. But what I would think is some solutions for being able to leave some faders at Unity or let's say your submix at Unity, yeah. you get your, your clip gain right or whatever. Um, you could either do that with group tracks. Um, that's not going to be individual, but let's say you have a, you can almost think of it like a VCA for the drums. Right. And that's the thing that's getting the, the CC information. Um, I believe that would be the case. You could send that out. I, the, um, yeah, I'm thinking about the MIDI routing off the top of my head. I'm not entirely sure, but the short answer is as long as you can send that, that CC information to a fader, that could be a, a return track yep. or it could be a group track like that. If you want however you lay that out, 
that fader will act like it's receiving a dial from any kind of controller. So I know I have done that briefly, gosh, with an old, uh, actually with an AWS 900 console, the SSL console that was at the school I taught at. We had a nice. little bit of fun with um, sending some of the MIDI information, but it uses HUI and it's kind of like, it's got a whole other layer underneath it. Um, but if it's simple MIDI, then you're, yeah, you're golden in that case. So, so I, does that kind of answer my brain hurts. Yes, the idea is further developing. So now I think it's kind of like a virtual fader, but yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I because it's just MIDI, it doesn't have to be on the same console. So I could get an Avid S1 or any kind of fader bank for that matter, as long as or it's a Behringer X Touch or, or whatever any other kind of anything. Yeah. yeah, and give me every track that you have in Ableton here, <laughs> and then I know I'm basically doing the submixing myself. Instead of me telling the drummer, like, hey, tambourine can, needs to come down 2 dB on this song. I've got them all. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a, a doable setup. Again, the the details of it might be, you know, you have to make sure you pop on that MIDI interface and the preferences, make sure that's yeah. the active one. But, yeah, I mean, and those, those mappings will persist. Like, if you save a MIDI mapping with a set, it's going to look for that mapping when you open it up the next time. So as long as that devi- MIDI device is there, it, it'll it'll preserve those mappings too so i love that idea i have a feeling if i asked for this setup then they would just ask me to now hit the space bar at at that (laughs) point i mean yeah and this goes into the other i you know i my soapbox for all of this and has been honestly since way back in the day was i i would often get asked for tracks and things like that and this was prior to multi-tracks existing and those kind of resources so it was like hey can i have the loop for mystery or something and generally i'm like oh cool you know i don't like it's not like ip you can take any of these things we have but it's also a level of in my pickiness or idealism like wanting folks to really dive into it for themselves so that they did have to think of it as an augmented part of their own instrument and 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 that's not for everybody and that's again if you're working with a church with a volunteer base where the goal is actually accessibility and not like every person that comes in is going to be a remix DJ, right? Yeah. Um, or a lighting engineer or whatever. Um, you know, they grow into that, but maybe it's just to onboard, they need to be actually be able to hit space bar and just know how to run that, that session. Yeah. But that is the other encouragement of like finding ways for it to be something that it does feel still live and interactive, you know, that kind of thing. That's really good. I, I, I touched on this, but maybe this is something to cover at some point. We can talk about it now. This tends to always happen like when band gets out of the studio, mastering's done, you're about to start touring or playing a new song, you get the tracks and you get them split up and let's say like three or four stereo pair. It's like, man, that tambourine is so hot or man, that kick drum's crazy. It's not the same because you're not getting, you can't split out those tracks after mastering and even at the mix stage when the guy's got processing on his left right so it's just all over the place so Mm -hmm. to expect to just take those masters and put them at zero it it does not work right yeah yeah exactly yeah and that's where again there are some ways around that with the more traditional audio editing tools that are there whether that's using eq pretty aggressively whether the eq3 is an overlooked element because it is a dj eq it's intended for or it is kind of has its lineage there. It's intended for being able to isolate certain bands and to act almost like a DJ EQ where you can quickly go into a certain band of it. And of course that's not perfect. It's not, you know, a mastering EQ in that sense, but yeah. um, it is helpful sometimes for that, or you kind of have to 
unmaster some of those elements, yeah. which can be tough. And um, that's the other side of it. So, well, that's what we ended up doing was we would get the stems from the record label because they go there, then they come back to the band. And yeah. then we would put them in Pro Tools on a laptop at front of house and we'd listen to them. And then we would remix essentially so that when the faders were at zero, it was closer, but we could never get yeah. it dead right because of, well, we don't know what they had on the, on the processing on the two bus. Like they're sending out those stems before mastering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's yeah, that's that's the the perennial question of how much of that stuff to preserve. And for some folks, that you know, you have a mix engineer who may stem all that stuff out, or a mastering engineer might do that. But it does become very tough later in those production yep. stages to source all those things yep. for sure. I was going to say to Jay to go back to the question that um, you'd asked. There was another question I think about recalling presets on, let's say, like for example, Waves plugins. Um, the short answer is no, not really for presets in that sense. However, if you put, let's say, multiple instances of one plugin on there, let's, I don't know, CLA vocals or something. I'm trying to think of something on the top of my head. And you have vocal settings for three different songs. You can use an audio effect rack inside of Live where audio effect racks are ways to combine multiple audio effects. You can also do this with instruments. You can do it with MIDI effects and instruments and audio effects all in one big rack. To create essentially a, a super device or a super preset that you can save in your library, put it in multiple sets. But inside of an audio effect rack, you can use an element that um, essentially called the chain mixer. Each individual preset lives on its own kind of sub mixer, and you can mute or unmute or solo or use the chain selector, which is a kind of fancy internal um, uh, process inside the audio effect rack itself to be able to select which one you currently want to be active. And that's a great way to be able to do that kind of preset recall because that responds to MIDI one, and it can also respond to, you know, individual clip envelopes too, if you needed to. If they were asking, can it change scenes in super rack? Yes, that's just MIDI, but yeah. Ableton can now, you can put waves plugins inside of Ableton now, which is how new is that? A few years? I mean, it's it's you've always been able to do oh, okay. uh, AUs and VSTs, yeah. Got and into each of the parameters are exposed. You can still map any of those individual third-party plugins too, as well. So it's been something that's always kind of been the case as far back as I can remember. Yeah. So yeah. And then the third part, Jay, I, I think I'm remembering correctly from the question. Oh, sending MIDI out to ProPresenter, etc. Right. So. Yes, any any MIDI output from live can very quickly go to ProPresenter with the MIDI module. I know they've recently changed this a little bit, um, maybe in the past couple of years, but the MIDI module in ProPresenter, as long as there is MIDI active in ProPresenter, and I'm foggy on the exact licensing, et cetera, of that, um, all you need in live is actually a MIDI channel. Or I'm sorry, <clears throat> excuse me, a MIDI track. And when you have just a blank MIDI track in live, meaning it doesn't host a software instrument, its default output is actually to send MIDI out of live to somewhere else. And so when you create a MIDI clip in live, you can draw in, you know, slides one, two, three, four, five. And that is notes C, C sharp, D, D sharp, E, F. Like that would be kind of how that succession runs. That's a very simple setup. And really it is literally making pro presenters. Um, uh, you make the IAC device or whatever your internal MIDI bus is, the, uh, the output option in live from that MIDI track, and then it will talk to ProPresenter or whatever external really easily. And that's the same yeah, for... Yeah, this could, this could then apply to a lighting console. Exactly, yeah. Uh, to uh, a, a outboard effects chain. Yep. 
um, to a Kemper. Yeah, totally. To all to you know, all kinds of things that take MIDI, basically. Yep, exactly. I, Dustin, yep. I'd love to hear from you, like maybe some of the most creative setups that you've seen, or and maybe even extensive. Like the one that comes to my mind is One Republic. What they do. Yeah. with tracks it's it's literally running every device on the stage all production consoles even the video switcher is receiving midi that's even coming from ableton to begin with so do you have you seen anything else like that gosh i mean it, yes i mean i'm trying to think of a really specific example um of something that's just kind of over the top but i think it it generally boils down to i'm even thinking about I, when I was teaching in the college, the projects I would assign for students and the final project for the advanced Ableton class was to create a piece of music that also had a visual element that was responsive to the music. Some of them did that with Max for Live devices where you actually, they're custom building these graphics programs that are responsive to the audio itself. There's no middle person for that. It's just audio and then the graphics respond to that. Wow. And they can be very, very gra- you know, individual and creative. You can make that almost anything that you want it could be video sourcing they could do gl graphics where you're creating geometric you know shapes that are created by apple's video engine like it's very very uh, or i'm sorry the video engine the computer period very deep when it comes to that but they also would use different dmx uh, protocols so everything from dmxs which offers you the hardware via usb to having something that translates it you know further down the line and do all these dmx lighting designs based on their music because Again, the the advantage of doing it in the context of where you're also doing your composition or you know say music production is that it's just a very short distance from thinking about the gestures musically they're happening to the gestures that are happening visually on there. And again, the computers, especially like you know new M1 computers, but also really great Windows computers for this, just have so much power for this kind of stuff and are able to silo graphics and things like that in a way that mean that you can run some pretty intensive threaded processes but in terms of like a specific setup uh, you know off the top of my head there's i don't have like a a very good one that's just can roll off the tongue um i do think there's a really a a whole nice set of these on ableton.com there's a great feature recently on imagine dragons doing this and that was one that i think stood out um and i love the uh the setup of folks like uh, ian chang from sunlux who have a whole lighting rig that's connected to their drums and then Sensory percussion elements that are um, triggering sounds that are coming out of live. And then it's just, it's all very on the fly and can be improvisational, but also very expressive and, and exciting to watch. So, very cool. That's so cool. Well, I think that's pretty awesome. You know, most churches aren't utilizing these tools this way. And exactly. so, a lot of, a lot of people are, you know, volunteer based teams who are just trying to make sure that they've got. Gosh, you mean we can split out these outputs and have more than just two channels yeah. of tracks? Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's back off from the sort of ultimate expression of what live is capable of down to some of those nuts and bolts. Like what would you give it as good advice for best practices for somebody who is just sort of dipping their toe in the water of yeah. multi-channel, especially, and how to split things up and how to communicate with the whoever's in charge of that on the band side to yeah. go hey here's why i need these outputs this way and here's maybe some helpful tips on just the best ways to make that most effective no absolutely i mean i so maybe thinking of it in two two kind of domains here one would be the the need side or the um you could think of this as the uh, the creative side of it so 
in the context of the band that's playing, you know, whether that is Sunday morning, whether it's traveling again, it could, it could adapt the context, but, um, you know, question how you need this setup to be in terms of the musical element. So do you feel like it's, it's worth it for you all to have to pay a little bit more attention to the playback, meaning you either have a keyboardist or drummer, you know, if it's, you know, 15 years ago, whatever, um, you have somebody that is, that is in real time playing different portions of the tracks and you break those up. Or if it makes a little bit more sense that, you know, you're going to play a form in a fairly, uh, you know, predictable way, but within that form, you do want to have some flexibility to maybe start and stop at different times, all of that answer some of those questions for yourself, because I think that could lead you into maybe focusing on arrangement view. If you think that you're going to play the song similarly each time, or you're using multi-tracks, for example, from multitracks.com or, you know, something from Luke community, that kind of thing. It, um, that, then that case of arrangement view is probably going to make more sense because not only visually can you see how it's laid out, but you also know that you can begin it and it's going to go through just as you expect. And that's kind of the creative side. Now, another option, again, I mentioned is if you wanted to do something that, um, perhaps has a little bit more flexibility in terms of the playback, you can use markers both in arrangement view. So uh, locators that are playable. Each of the locators inside of Live's arrangement view, when you set a locator, you create a locator, which happens at the playhead when you're in arrangement view. Um, They have play buttons, the little flags that are at the very top of them. They always look like flags to me. They're actually play buttons. Those are MIDI assignable. They're keyboard assignable to the computer keyboard. And that can be a way to jump with the same kind of bar quantization, meaning you jump to the next section at the next bar, that can happen in arrangement view just like it does in session view. It's a little bit different because you have to pay attention to some things like tempo and, and the tracks that you're on a little bit differently, but that's one way to do it. The other way, and thinking about this on the creative side in session view, is to think about a verse, let's say simplify it, verse, chorus, and bridge of your tracks, You know, whatever those elements are. Using scenes inside a live session view, which again, I know visually you have to be familiar with live to kind of picture this, um, but you can go and see this both at ALN.com. You could do it with the trial. Um, You could do this if you already have live, you can try this out in session view. And using your scenes on the far right in the master track, just with a single play button, assign all the layers that you've got, you know, string them out horizontally in that same row for your verse, for your chorus, and for your bridge. And using one single button, you can move back and forth between those elements as needed. You know, try it in a rehearsal where it's like, let's go and let's do the course again and get used to that rhythm of whoever's controlling that going, okay, we're in the course, two, three, four, and they hit the button for the next thing, right? And starting very simply in session view, not feeling like you've got to interact with every fader and every knob and do all this automation and go, we're going to play this non-linearly. I'm going to mix elements from every... It really doesn't have to be that. It can be playing one single button there in the scenes in the master session view. And that can sonically open up your world. So that's the creative side. The other domain of that would be the sonic question and what you're asking about with routing. Um, And I would think, again, encourage you to kind of think simply about it of if you were a band, what kind of outputs would you be outputting to a, um, to a, a front of house, right? It's going to be let's say drums in stereo coming as tracks, if you have loops and percussive elements or drums themselves. Um, next would be maybe low frequency things, probably just bass, you know, and I love bass. So bass should get its own instrument, or I'm sorry, its own dedicated channel, right? <laughs> and 
if you if you are using synthesized bass and it is a little bit more stereo, that's great. Again, those are questions for the downstream reception of this. If you have a mono system, maybe this is mute, but also if you have a stereo bass coming out to that, you have questions of making sure that makes sense in terms of phase relationships. But um, separating that out allows you to do that very quickly. And then so you know, stereo drum send, a mono or stereo bass send, and then a stereo keys and everything melodic send, you know, and Maybe on top of that, you have background vocals or things like that that you can also have another one. That's on great. Live's individual audio tracks, the output of those tracks, you can see the audio two. It says audio two, and then there's a couple of chooser menus there. The first of those menus is the audio two, what device or destination? So external output would be the one in this case you'd want. So EXT out. And then from there, you'll see any channels that are available based on the hardware that you have. So if you have six outputs, you'll see one, two is a pair, three, four is a pair, five, six is a pair. You can also make those mono outputs and all that stuff can be chosen in the audio output preferences too. So, Well, really we're talking about what six channels because most of the time click and simpty take up two channels. Yeah, and that's true. Don't yeah. forget the guide because these uh, paid musicians don't have time to practice apparently or read their bibles no i put the guide in i put the guide and the click together (laughs) they just suck it up my buddy plays drums for a pretty famous country uh gal and his talkback is only to be the guide they don't play with multi-channel stems i don't think they have tracks at all actually so his md mic is chorus two three four and the the drummer's doing this every (laughs) song multiple times a song for her I love it. Yeah. Obviously, Ableton is a big part of our community's workflow um, and just music in general. So we should probably figure out how to get uh, some videos. At some we should. Collaboratively. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's more and more like you joked about it earlier, but you know, it used to be the drummer and then you see some keyboard players and now got Ableton. Now there's a guy on the side of the stage and it's his only job. Like that's becoming more and more the thing. And sure. the production teams are now in charge sometimes of once the song gets loaded into Ableton, everything after that point is falling on production, especially when it comes to interfaces and hardware. So it definitely is something that we need to know. The playback guy role has been pretty prevalent touring, but it's coming to churches. Um, Elevation, I think central is that way, right? Yeah. Where they have a dedicated play guy. It also cleans the stage up. It's not having all that stuff on stage having a dedicated you know they love those clean stages yep so well i love it man and i mean and it's really like again i thinking back on the reflection again not to get back on the uh the the creativity soapbox or whatever but <clears throat> thinking back to where you know it began uh, at least for me and the, the kind of context of it i remember talking i think maybe to BWAC about this about pushing play on like sp303 and having a three minute song that click is on the uh, you know right and then uh you know the track is on the left and then just kind of like you could go with it and you just hopefully don't have a train wreck to really being able to splice things up and think thinking a little bit more freedom about the other layers that you have and again it, it asks something of you too and that's the other side of it is it's not just necessarily as simple as like well we dropped our tracks in and we push play and we go but right there is an element of attention that does have to be paid to it and then the more and more that becomes an integral part, then you have, you know, somebody whose job is just to pay attention to those kind of pieces. But I would say as a note of encouragement for anybody thinking about it, that it doesn't have to be at that that kind of place of, of stress and pressure. It really does become 
encourage you to think of it like an instrument and it yeah. really does become like an instrument, but you have to practice an instrument to feel comfortable at it. And, um, that's the other side of it is to not, not feel like that's a pretentious thing to think like it's a doll. That's an instrument. Like we all know and love Brian, Eno, but it is the <laughs> side of like, it really is trying to be an instrument and the, um, and so there's a practice element that's involved that you'd be amazed at how quickly that can become part of your muscle memory for sure. I bet you and BWAC had some nerd fest <laughs> conversations. Oh, we continue to, yeah. In a celebrity in a celebrity death match, do you think DCB would win or the Charlie Hall band? Oh man. Well, there were five I mean, I guess there were five for both of us at various times. Like, I mean, I, yeah, gosh, that's that's an impossible question. I'm calling man. Charlie no, they Hall. Had, Oklahoma City, those guys got guns. But listen, do not rule Crowder out. I have tried to fight him multiple times <laughs> in my life. And he is stupid, strong, and wiry, and fast. Okay. B-Wax like me. He's like a cannonball. You just throw him in the middle and just let him do what he does. See, I, I think that's that was Charlie's always his claim was always I might be small, but I'm scrappy. That was, and so I'm just picturing like a like a Wolverine. <laughs> like that's kind of yeah. what's in my mind. Yeah, but the the other DCB the other DCB guys like Jack, Mark, they're all pansies. <laughs> uh, so that would have never worked. But BWAC and Crowder. And then if you put Rob, if you include road managers from the DCB or Rob Albert, Rob Albert could have taken Charlie Hall band on by himself. <laughs> Probably too. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's fair. I'll give it. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. Well, Dustin, until we get you to record some videos for our content site, what's the best way people can get to you and learn more about Ableton? Because I know you Gosh. guys have a ton of training videos as well. Yeah, I mean the the honest best answer for that is ableson.com and I really do mean that. I I don't want your ears to close when you're like, yeah, the website for your, you know, your company, your brand. But it really is intended to be there's a strategic decision that we made to have it be a creative hub for people and not necessarily like here's our stuff, you know. So I really really encourage you to go to ableson.com to see one there's specific instructional very compressed. They're like a minute, two minutes long each. So hopefully that just got your attention right there of like, it's not 15 minutes of throat clearing and then some sponsor ads. And then you kind of get there. That's a really good starting place really is to, to go to some of those resources there, as well as the creative side of seeing artists and people like that, that, um, uh, can all kind of offer insights on there. You'll also see things with certified training and they're, uh, able to certify trainers spread throughout the States and, you know, worldwide, they are great local resources. You may you can search by where you're at, or you can kind of scan through and see. And again, most of them are going to do things over Zoom, just like we all do now. And those are great resources for learning more individually or with your teams, setting up trainings. Um, would definitely encourage you to check that out. And then there are, of course, um, yeah, a ton of good resources online too. So you prefer for me not to text you at 7.45 in the morning with, are you up when the shit hit the fan for me this past Sunday? <laughs> no, that's, that's a privilege <laughs> for you. Which is exactly sure. what I did. <laughs> no, I mean, any of, any, I'm sure that there are a lot of folks listening who are their Ableton guru uh, for their particular um, community. And it's, it's just part of the fun of it. And I honestly, sincerely, it's a joy that like, that's still part of it. And I kind of enjoy those, those, uh, those questions. And, if you're on a Sunday, it's a good chance I'll be up anyway. And actually any day because I have young kids and I'll be up early anyway in time. So that's awesome. Well, man, thanks so much. So I mean, so much insight. I mean, so many questions unanswered too. So we need sure. to have you back so we can continue this conversation. That was great. Thank you all again so much. And thanks to all the whole MXU community. So we'll talk soon. 
Well, that was awesome. I loved hearing from Dustin. He's super smart. Oh my gosh, there's so much there that we could just dig deeper into, which I think we need to. I mean, we got pretty deep. I had to like put the brakes on. I'm like, this is going to go another hour. Yeah, you, you yeah. got into some craziness about adding a console next to your console so you could mix yeah. tracks. Like, that's not good. I No, just a little just a little MIDI fader bank. Like, that's all it would need to be. Yes. I think it's a great idea. It, it, it is, right? Yeah. You just be the playback guy side stage then. That's what we're getting real close to that. I can't listen, I can't tell you the number of times I have wanted to go into various elements and pull stuff up or down. Yep. I mean, I think if you gave that job to the person who was actually sitting in front of house and could hear what's needed, man, game changer. If you can't fix it, feature it, bro. Just turn it on up. Let them have that tempo. What if Ableton had nodal processing and the changes that I made didn't affect broadcast or uh, monitors. I'm out. Okay, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop. Yeah, you need to. You need to stop. Yeah, I love Dustin. I think he has such a great temperament for teaching too. Like he's great. He really he's a does. Great teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Teacher. He's a great teacher. All right, boys. All right, fellas. Uh, Jeff, see you in Vegas in 48 hours. Yeah, I cannot wait. It's gonna be awesome. Jay, I wish you were gonna be with us, but somebody's got to work. So yep. thanks for holding down the fort and. Um, have fun with Willie. I will. I'll say hey to Willie. Leah, I'll give him your uh, father-in-law's phone number. And That's great. From there. It'll be great. Awesome, guys. 